You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Back in uh, 1987, I was working as a substitute teacher in the Davenport Community School System, and the last two months of this year I was subbing, I was filling a pregnancy leave for one teacher, and it was the last two months of the teaching cycle there, and in the process of that being in one place for two months, I really got to know the school and the other teachers and the students uh, really, really well, the principal um, of that school, and sometime during the summer, the teacher I was filling in for decided that she wanted to resign her position and to remain at home with her newborn. And just because of the relationships I had developed with other teachers and the student and the principal, during those two months I was subbing, I was offered and accepted her vacant position. And so I went on to teach uh, for two years there, and I just really loved the school. I loved the students, loved the teachers. I was like minutes um, from where I was living, and, and to me, it was like the perfect job. Following the end of my second year teaching there, for some unknown reason, the teachers' union filed a complaint against the principal of that school for hiring me because the position should have been posted throughout the district, allowing other teachers to bid on that position. So to make a long story short, there were teachers in the district who had way more seniority uh, than I did that wanted that job. And at this point, I only had two years seniority, and it became very apparent to me quickly that I was not going uh, to continue with my current teaching assignment there. So the school uh, district gave me a proposal, and they said, we'll offer you another position, and you can take that position voluntarily, which means I, I volunteer to take what they're offering me, or we are going to involuntarily assign you that position. But either way, you're going to a different teaching position. Now the difference was, was if I took the teaching position, if I took the offer voluntarily, it would look a lot better on my records um, than if I were forced or it was an involuntary transfer. Uh, So I I agreed to do it voluntarily. Now, the position they were offering me, it was diametrically the opposite of what I had. The position they were offering me, this new position, it was in the inner city of Davenport. It was clear across town. I had never really subbed and really didn't know any of the teachers, did not know the principal, but this school, particular school, had the well-earned reputation of being one of the most difficult schools behaviorally in Iowa. As a matter of fact, when I went to visit this potential assignment, the parking lot for the teachers was enclosed with a high fence and had barbed wire wrapped around the top of it um, because they had so much damage being done to teachers' cars. That summer, they also had a young girl who had been raped and burned to death right there on the school playground. 
Children were often used, and this was an elementary school, and children were often used to transport drugs. Back then they called them donkeys. I don't know if they still use that terminology today, but what would happen is one child would uh, bring a package of drugs in their backpack, and they were instructed to give it to this particular child to put in their backpack, and then they would take it home um, to whoever was expecting it, and that was kind of one of the ways they would transport drugs back and forth. Now, the kids had no idea what was in the packages. They're just doing, as they're told, give this package to so-and-so or get a package from so-and-so and bring it back home. Um, we, I mean, it was very, very unusual if we didn't have one or several police officers there um, in the school. Uh, and so I, I could go on, but my point being, it, it really was the absolute worst assignment I could have been given. And I either took the job or I had no job. I had no choice uh, and I was really kind of out of options. And so, like I said, I agreed to take the position voluntarily so it would reflect well on my record. And I'll tell you what, it was exactly what I expected. It was a complete nightmare. I'll tell you what, the first week of, of classes, I did not sleep at night. I was so stressed out. I did not know how to handle these students. Um, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't know how to relate to them. Um, I didn't know how to deal with all of the behaviors. I mean, when I went through the um, orientation as a new teacher at that school, they, you know, had a list of things. If, if you know, a child does or says this in your classroom, you know, uh, swears, uh, you know, does any number of things that we were to send them to the principal's office. And so that first week, I had many, many kids that were, you know, flipping me off, uh, using just the foulest of language, um, directed at me, uh, would not obey, would not do what they were being asked to do. I mean, there were times they would just get up in the middle of the class and just walk out. Um, and, and if I tried to, you know, to, to stop them, they would, you know, right away, you know, tell me, you can't touch me, you touch me, my parents are going to sue you. And I mean, it, it was just crazy. Um, and so I would send them down to the principal's office, again, just following the guidelines I was given. And a little later uh, in the week, I think it may have been like a, a Friday, um, the principal came up uh, upstairs, and, and usually the principal of this particular school, I mean, he was usually drunk every day by noon. I, he would just sit down in his office and drink. I couldn't blame the guy. I mean, if I had to do what he did, I would probably be drinking. I mean, I felt like drinking just because of what I was going through uh, in dealing with these kids for one week. I can't imagine what it would have been like year after year. But he came up and, uh, and said to me, you know, I, I noticed you've been sending a lot of kids down to the office. Of course, he had to deal with them. And I said, well, yeah, you know, during the orientation, you had kind of given us a list of, you know, things if the child did this or said so that we were to send them down to the principal's office. He said, yeah, 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 I understand that. But he said, I just want you to understand um, what, how this is going to reflect on your record. And I said, and how is that? And he said, it, it looks like you can't control your classroom. And so I knew that that was code for stop sending these kids down to my office and deal with the problems yourself. 
I mean, I, look at, I, I could go on, but it, it was just an absolute nightmare uh, of, an, of an assignment. And I'll tell you what, there is no worse feeling in the world than when you are convinced you are out of options. I mean, I just felt like I was out of options. It was take this or nothing. There are people in prison today because they felt like they were out of options. Their back was up against the wall, so they embezzled money from the company or they rob a bank and or commit murder. There are people who are alive no longer today. They committed suicide because they, they think their life is no longer worth living, and they kind of felt like they're out of options. Maybe you're here this morning and you kind of just feel like you are on the verge of giving up on a marriage, maybe on a dream. Maybe you're even just giving up on life itself because you have believed or convinced yourself you're out of options, you're at the end of your road. If that's you this morning, I think you're really gonna enjoy the next several weeks because we're gonna do a series called Out of Options. There are some great stories in the Bible with real life people in real life situations. And there are people who appear to be out of options. Their back is up against the wall. They don't feel there's any other way to turn. And in the midst of that, they kind of learn one of the most valuable lessons I think anybody in that position can ever learn, and it is this. With God, there is always an option. With God, there is always another way. Or I like how Jesus puts it in Matthew 19, 26. He says, humanly speaking, or from a human perspective, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And I just want you to know, our amazing God, he is never out of options. You may be out of options, but God never is. You may feel like you're at the end of the road. But you know what, with God, it's just the beginning of an amazing journey. The first person who's gonna teach us how he learned this lesson is a 14-year-old high school student by the name of Daniel. His story takes place about 2,600 years ago. The year is around 605 BC. And I want you just to see how we're introduced to his situation in the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter one, beginning with the first verse. And in the year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed those vessels in the treasury of his God. One of the promises that God made to the nation of Israel, and it's really a promise that God makes to us as well, and it's very, very simple. The promise was if they would obey God, if they would follow him, he would bless them. But if they disobeyed God, if they rebelled against him, he would turn their palaces into prisons. They would exchange the comforts of freedom for the chains of bondage. And they were given repeated and fair warnings. I mean, you see in the Old Testament, over and over and over again, God would send prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and they would go and they would plead and they would beg with the nation of Israel to repent and to turn back to God. But their warnings fell on deaf ears. And because God keeps his promises, both the promises of blessing and the promises of curses, Israel eventually is conquered and they're taken captive. Jerusalem is taken captive by the Babylonian army and a king named Nebuchadnezzar. 
who was a pagan king from a pagan country. Now in those days, every time the Babylonian army would go into a nation and they would seize it, they would carry out whatever idols were there that that country was worshiping. And since Israel didn't worship idols, the king couldn't take their idol gods. So he took the next best thing. He would take their articles. He would take their utensils he found in the temple. And he took them out of the, the uh, sanctuaries of Israel. And he brought them into his temples. All for the purpose of humiliating the nation of Israel. So that every time the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, would, would, would see those items that were seized and taken from their places of worship and put into Nebuchadnezzar's, it was a reminder to them our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is more powerful than your God. And then something else they also did. Verse 3, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Babylonians. So they would go in and they would seize the nation. And so what they would do is they would begin to look among those prisoners and they would start looking for the best, the brightest, the smartest, the socially well-to-do. They would start looking for the first round draft picks, those five-star recruits. And they would take them out of their country and they would bring them back to their country and they would give them an intellectual, a mental, and a spiritual extreme makeover. Their goal was to completely transform these men from whatever culture they had come from into world-class, first-class Babylonians. Verse 5 continues, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that the king drank. And they were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. These young men, they're given full scholarships to the University of Babylon. It was kind of equivalent to the Harvard of our day. They were given Babylonian names. They were given Babylonian clothes. And all of this was for one purpose, one goal. The books they read, the clothes they wore, the language they spoke, even the names they were given was to transform them into thinking like Babylonians, acting like Babylonians, and living like Babylonians. Again, there's nothing wrong with studying in the world's university. There's nothing wrong with wearing the world's clothes or enjoying the world's culture or speaking the world's language. But Daniel does something that is just totally unexpected that eventually we're all gonna have to do if we're going to follow God and not the world. He draws a line in the sand. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved. I mean, circle that word on your outline. If, you've, if you're using your Bible, circle that word. Highlight that word. It's so key. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile 
himself with the king's food or the wine that the king drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So when Daniel was asked to eat the king's food and to drink the king's wine, there is this red flag that is raised in Daniel's heart. Now, I don't know all of the reasons why Daniel drew a line at eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine, but he does so. And he says, and he identifies, because to do so, he believed would defile him before God. One thing we do know is that in Middle Eastern cultures, when you sit down to a meal, particularly with a king or a ruler, it was a sign of covenant commitment of friendship, of total loyalty, of allegiance to that king and to his kingdom. You were pledging loyalty to the king, but to Daniel, there was only one king, only one God. So Daniel may have refused to eat the king's food and to drink his wine because he did not want his participation to signal any kind of allegiance or covenant loyalty toward the king and all that he stood for and represented as a Babylonian. So again, it appears at this point in the story as if Daniel is out of options. His back's up against the wall. And it appears that Daniel has not only drawn a line in the sand, but he may have also signed his own death certificate because to refuse an order of the king was asking, was begging to be executed. But for some reason, Daniel felt very strong about this, that he was willing to be killed rather than to obey the king's order. So this morning, I want to just quickly look at a couple of things Daniel did And we can do when it looks like we are out of options, when it looks like our back is up against the wall. The first thing is resolve to guard your boundaries. Resolve to guard your boundaries. Again, Daniel has no problem reading the Babylonian books, speaking the Babylonian language, dressing in the Babylonian clothes. However, when it comes to doing something that would defile him before God, Daniel drew a line in the sand and said, I'll go only this far, but no further. Verse five, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Again, it's important to keep in mind what's at stake here. These were slaves, and they were being trained for positions of honor and power in the Babylonian kingdom. They would be given great salaries, great accommodations, the finest food and clothing, and all they had to do was to go along. All they had to do was just keep their mouths shut, do as they're told, keep their head down, and happy days would be theirs again. There were a lot of reasons for Daniel and his friends to say yes. I mean, they're on their own. No one back in Israel would know what they had done. Everybody else around them was doing it, eating steak, baked potatoes, washing it down with wine. But Daniel and his friends, they had boundaries. There were things they were not willing to do. And these may have been boundaries that he got from his upbringing It may be boundaries he learned from his parents. It may be boundaries that the Spirit of God downloaded into him. The word resolve there in verse 8, it literally means to purpose or to determine in your heart. 
There are certain things that went against Daniel's heart. And no matter what his head may have told him to do, Daniel followed his heart. Again, this is not just a matter, it's not just an issue of diet. I mean, this is an issue, it's a matter of dedication. There was a line, there were boundaries. Daniel had to decide which side of that line, which side of that boundary he was going to be on. Someone has wisely said, there is a choice you have to make in everything you do. You must always keep in mind the choice you make makes you. Again, don't discount, don't minimize the pressure that Daniel was under. This was more than just political pressure to please a king. Daniel also faced a much greater pressure, and that's a pressure all of of us have faced and probably will continue to face until the day we die. It's called peer pressure. Remember, he's not the only Jewish teenager that there was. We don't know how many there were, but there were probably hundreds of them. But Daniel was the first we know of who said, no, I can't, I won't. Can you imagine the conversation that may have taken place? Everybody's looking at him and saying, come on, Daniel, everybody's doing it. And Daniel says, no, not everybody is doing it. I'm not doing it. And they're saying, but Daniel, no one will ever know. And Daniel's saying, yes, God will know. I will know. They're saying, Daniel, you might die if you don't do this. And Daniel's saying, I would rather die than to defile myself before God. Now, again, it's important to remember, Daniel is only about 14 years of age at this point in the story. But evidently, something has happened throughout his entire life that prepared him to stand in this moment. Again, there were some lines that that Daniel had already drawn, some boundaries Daniel had already made that he would not cross. I want to say to all of you parents, one of the greatest things you can ever do for your children while they are young is teach them where their boundaries need to be, and teach them no matter what else happens, do not cross these boundaries. See again, if you wait until you're tempted to cross the boundary, if you wait to kind of decide until you're in the moment what your boundaries are, many times it's too late. It may be too late to decide what your ethical standards are going to be when you're filling out your first income tax return. It may be too late to determine your financial integrity or your financial boundaries when the money is already on the table. It may be too late to decide whether or not you're going to do drugs or drink or have sex if you're going to wait until the time you are faced with it. Decide now before. Before you get into those moments, decide now what your boundaries are and resolve in your heart that you're going to avoid even getting close to those boundaries. Know what they are now and resolve, commit in your heart to guard those boundaries. There's a king who 
lived high atop a mountain. And he often liked to be driven in his carriage down the mountain into the village below. And the road leading from the castle to the village was steep and the road was narrow and there were no guardrails along the road. And one day the king was hiring a new driver of his carriage. And the king interviewed three men and he asked each one of them one simple question. How close to the edge of the road can you come without driving the carriage over the side of the mountain? The first man said he could come within five feet of the side of the road without driving the carriage over the side of the mountain. The second man said he could drive the carriage with the wheel within inches of the side of the road without plunging over the side of the mountain. The third man replied, I would keep the carriage as far as I possibly could from the edge of the road. And the king hired the third man. Some people, they just like living life on the edge. They like just getting as close as they can to those boundaries. And the problem with that is all it takes is one little misstep. All it takes is a moment of weakness. And before you know it, you've gone over the edge. Again, know your boundaries, guard your boundaries, and resolve. Commit in your heart to live with some margin between you and the edges of those boundaries. Second thing Daniel did and we need to do when we're out of options, rely on guidance from heaven. Rely on guidance. Count on it. Look for it. Expect it. I want you to listen to verse 8 again. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. Again, another way to translate that word resolve, again, is to set aside. That is talking about a line you just draw in the sand. A boundary you put around life that literally refers to a spiritual conviction. In all likelihood, Daniel had grown up in a home. He was surrounded by people in a community where he was taught to love God with all of his heart, all his mind, all his soul, and all of his strength. And here's the thing. You could change Daniel's home, but you could not change his heart. You could change his name, but you could not change his nature. You could put Daniel into Babylon, but you couldn't get Babylon into Daniel. There was a God boundary around Daniel. Daniel's life. Now there's a word that we use for God-given boundaries and they are called convictions. Daniel's God-given conviction leads to the next part of this story. Verse 8, therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigns your food and your drink for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So would you endanger my head with the king? In other words, he's saying if you refuse this and and it starts to reflect badly on you, you start to look sickly and weak And the king finds out, I've made this arrangement with you. The king could have my head over this. And so this is a big deal to this eunuch. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of eunuchs had assigned over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said, test your servants for 10 days. Give us 10 days. 
Let us be given nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and you deal with your servants according to what you see. That's that divine guidance. So he listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for 10 days. Now, again, there's an obvious difference here because all of the Jewish boys that were there, only Daniel and his three friends drew that line in the sand. So what was the difference? I mean, what set them apart, those four apart from all the other boys? They were all Jews. They had all been taught to believe in God. They were all taught, they memorized great portions of God's word. They had all been brought up to believe there was a difference between right and wrong. They had all been brought up to believe there was a difference between good and evil. What made these four guys so different? What made them stand apart? Here's the difference. All the other Jewish captives had beliefs, but Daniel and his friends had convictions. You know what, there's a tremendous difference between belief and convictions. Belief is what you have in your head. A conviction is what you hold in your heart. A belief says, I'm convinced of this truth. A conviction says, I'm committed to this truth. See, people will argue for their beliefs, but they will die for their convictions. Beliefs are negotiable, convictions are not. Beliefs are what you hold on the outside. Convictions are what you hold on the inside. There may be some of you here this morning, you have beliefs that need to be converted into convictions. Some of you may believe it's important to read the Bible, but you don't read it. You need to make that a conviction and actually start reading the Bible. Some of you sit there and say, I believe in prayer, but you don't pray. You need to make that a conviction and start praying. Some of you may believe it's wrong to do drugs, to drink, to look at pornography, and you're doing all or some of those things, but you believe it's wrong. You need to make that a conviction and resolve in your heart to stop. See, beliefs are important, but convictions are even more important. And that is what set Daniel and his three friends apart from all the others. They had convictions where the rest of them were just operating on beliefs. There's an even deeper reason here why Daniel and his friends came up with this ingenious plan to keep from crossing that line and to keep defiling themselves before God. Again, don't think for a moment Daniel just came up with this idea on his own. This again is that divine guidance, that divine revelation, those strategic plans that God gives to us. Listen to verse nine, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. While every other Jewish boy felt they had no choice, that they were out of options, their back is up against the wall. We gotta go along to get along. We have to do what we're told. Daniel and his friends relied on, they looked for, they expected divine strategies and guidance. There's such a great principle here that has proven itself so true in my life. When you are determined to follow God's path for your life, he will direct you to the right path. A familiar Proverbs in all the Bible is this one from chapter three, verses five through six. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not to your own understanding 
In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. I love that line, in all of your ways, acknowledge him. I believe Daniel, from the moment the Babylonians came in there to seize Israel, I believe that Daniel had always acknowledged God in all of his ways. And Daniel, from that moment the Babylonian army took captive Israel, I believe that Daniel kept acknowledging God in all of his ways. As they're being marched out of Israel and into Babylon, I believe Daniel is acknowledging God. As they're going through all of the changes and the transitions that would be uh, from being an Israelite to being a Babylonian, I just believe that Daniel continued to acknowledge God in all of his ways. And as you're going to see as the story unfolds here over the weeks, that, that God made Daniel's path straight. And again, when you think you're out of options and there's no other way, God has options. And folks, here's the, here's the beautiful thing. Sometimes there are multiple options. God gives you kind of a list of choices and you get to choose the one. They're all great. They're all blessings. God says you choose. God has a way, again, that will bless you and bring you to victory. When you think you're at a dead end, when you think there's no other way but the world's way, when there's no other way but the wrong way, again, if you'll look for, if you'll expect, if you'll just rely on God's guidance to guide you, he will make the path straight. He will make the right way. He'll open the door. One other thing, Daniel, just like this eunuch, do you realize Daniel had to wait on God for the results? I mean, as far as we know, Daniel had never been a vegetarian before. So Daniel had no way of knowing how this special diet over these next 10 days was going to pan out. At the end of those 10 days, Daniel didn't know how he was going to look in the king's eye. But you know what was more important to Daniel? How he looked in God's eyes. You must decide in your life if you're going to listen only to the voice of God, to follow the directions of God, and to go the way of God. Always know, count on, expect that God's path is straight and God's way is right. Third thing to remember, and that is remember, remember, remember that God is always working. Sometimes when you're out of options, it's so easy to lose sight of that. When you kind of feel like your back is up against the wall, it is so easy to lose sight of that. But remember, no matter what you're going through, God is always in there somewhere working. You may not see it. You may not recognize it. You may not know it. But just trust that God is always working. There's a word phrase that is repeated three times in chapter 1. And I think it really is kind of part of the key to understanding the life of this great man, Daniel. Listen to verse two. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 17, as for these four youth, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Hear those words. God gave, and God gave, and God gave, and God caused, and God caused, and God caused. It was God that caused Israel to fall to the Babylonians. It was God that caused Daniel to be one of the young men chosen to be part of the king's family and to receive favor with his supervisor. It was God that gave Daniel wisdom and understanding that was so far above and beyond that his peers, of his peers, that he ultimately becomes the king's right-hand man. I don't know where you are in life right now, 
But maybe some of you here this morning, you kind of just feel like you are in a room with no windows and no doors. You are convinced you're out of options. You have nowhere left to turn. You're absolutely convinced there's no way out of your dilemma except doing what everybody else would do. Take the path that everybody else would take. Make the decision everybody else would make. Fighting your battles all by yourself. And you've got to look out for number one. Let me just give you some good news. God is always working. I mean, do you think when Daniel's home was destroyed, when the Babylonians came in there to siege Israel, do do you think Daniel lost sight of the fact that God is still working? Do you think when Daniel was snatched away from his parents, his family, his friends, his home, and taken into a foreign land, do you think that Daniel believed God was working? When he was being asked to compromise his convictions, do you think Daniel believed God was working? That God had a plan and a purpose for Daniel and his three friends? You bet he did. And he never lost sight of the fact that while it may have looked otherwise, God was indeed at work and God was putting a plan together that would be a blessing, a pathway to victory for Daniel and his friends. God's ultimate plan for Daniel was to take him to the highest seat of influence in the greatest powers of the ancient world at that time. But do you realize for that to happen, Daniel had to be relocated. Daniel realized that he would play a key role in the preservation and the restoration of the nation of Israel and eventually in the birth of a Savior and a Messiah. The year I got moved from the one school I loved to the other school was a really, really rough year for me. As I said, the students were extremely challenging. There were many, many, many days that I went home at night and I never wanted to go back. But you know the one thing I forgot in the midst of all of that was God was at work. I didn't see it at the time. I didn't recognize it. I did not realize it. I got caught up in everything that was going on. And I lost sight of that key fact that God was at work. You see, it was during that very difficult year of teaching that I fully surrendered and accepted God's call on my life to become a pastor. I had felt it strangely, distantly. I felt God's call on my life. But I loved what I was doing. I loved where I was. I was comfortable. I didn't want to leave it. And I believe God took me from that one teaching position that I loved and just put me in a place where it was very, very difficult and very, very challenging for me in order for me to really get my priorities, to hear God's voice, to kind of get on God's plan. God created just enough disruption, just enough tension in my life that I was willing to just fully commit myself 
and take that step into full-time ministry. It was a tough time. And I know God was at work. And I know God used that situation to just move me into alignment with his plans and purposes for my life. Daniel, a 14-year-old kid, had no idea when he was taken captive and prisoner to a foreign land that over the next 40, 70 years of his life, he was going to climb to the highest positions in the court of Babylon and in Persia. In the last years of his life, he would exercise more power than any other member of the Jewish race had ever known. He had no idea that he would have the great privilege of leading his nation back to God and ultimately their return to their homeland according to God's promise. You see, God had a greater plan for Daniel than Daniel had for himself. God had a greater plan than Jeff had for himself. God has a greater plan for you than you have for yourself. But you know why Daniel's plan was carried out? Daniel saw God's line in the sand. He knew God's boundaries, and he refused to cross them. Every day of your life, you're going to come across lines in the sand. You're going to come up to your boundaries. And the world's going to tell you to cross that line. Money will tell you to cross that line. Sex will tell you to cross that line. Compromise will tell you to cross that line. You may even be convinced you're out of options and you have no choice but to cross that line. But again, just remember what Jesus told his disciples there in Matthew 19, 26. Humanly speaking, from a human perspective, it looks impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You know what? There are some situations, circumstances, challenges in your life that from a human perspective seem they look impossible to you. But when you factor God in, when you invite God in, allow him into whatever it is you're going through, all of a sudden impossibilities will become possibilities. Amen? Let's stand together this morning. Father, I just thank you that God, only you can take what seems or is so impossible to us and God, make it possible. And God, I, I just pray for anybody here this morning, God, that may just be at that place in their life where they just kind of feel like they're out of options. Maybe they just feel so boxed in in life right now, they just think there's no other way out. That God, their back is up against the wall this morning. God, I ask again, Lord, that you would just instill in them this conviction that what may seem impossible to them is possible with you. And so God, I just pray for anyone here this morning that may feel like they're in that place. And God, I just ask, Lord, that like Daniel, God, that you would just remind them this morning that God, even though they may not see it, they may not know it, they may not recognize it, but God, you are at work. Behind the scenes, God, you're doing things, God, that's gonna bring them to a place of peace, of victory. 
So, Father, I just pray, Lord, that this morning, God, that you would just, again, instill in them a steadfastness, God, that they're going to remain true, that they're going to remain committed to you, that, God, they're going to continue to follow hard after you in spite of everything that's happening. And, God, I pray, Lord, that you'll just instill that conviction to just look to you, to trust you, and to know that, God, you are at work. And God, again, we just thank you. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done through the breaking of Jesus' body, through the shedding of his blood. God, you took what was impossible for us, salvation, impossible for us, forgiveness. And God, through the breaking of the body, the shedding of his blood, you made both of those possible. Father, we have a relationship with you because Jesus' body was broken. Father, we have forgiveness of our sins, which was impossible, but because of Jesus' blood, it is now possible, and God, we thank you for that. And God, as we take communion this morning, God, I pray that it would be a reminder, God, that you took that which was impossible for us and made it possible through Christ. And God, you'll do it again. You'll do it now. You'll do it for us. And so, Lord, I just pray as we partake of communion, God, that it would just be a reminder of how you take the impossible and make it possible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.